RB Daddy. Yes. I'm starring Eric Decker. Oh, yeah. Playing Matt Forte. Doesn't matter cause I have Decker Decker in every league 24 fantasy points, Eric Decker Oh yeah Quincy and Nuwa American Dream Yeah! Six catches, 92 yards! Last round pick! Quincy and Nunwa. Six targets. Six catches. Woo! <laughs> what do I say at this point? I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. You watch these games. You pull up the box score. You've been listening to this show all along. Accessing the rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. All off season, the dynasty rankings. There's Eric Decker and there's Quincy Anunwa, inordinately high on the dynasty rankings. <laughs> Jeez, guys. <laughs> it's amazing. And Anunwa and Decker combined for 12 catches, 218 yards, and a touchdown last night. <laughs> it's just, just, ah! <laughs> I've been asking the question all summer, when is Eric Decker going to usurp Brandon Marshall as the team's number one wide receiver? And I think we're in the process of seeing that happen. Eric Decker was a wide receiver one in fantasy last year, and he looks like a wide receiver one in fantasy this year. He's who you should have been drafting in the third and fourth rounds, not running backs and not Sammy Watkins. What did we say about Sammy Watkins? Beware of the foot injury, the Des Bryant corollary. Even if he comes back, the Buffalo Bills are a lot like the Dallas Cowboys. They have maniacal leadership at the top. We knew all along they were going to rush Sammy Watkins back to his and the team's detriment because the Buffalo Bills coaching staff must win games to keep their job and the franchise as a whole is completely incompetent. It was the ideal scenario for rushing a player back and then the fantasy gamers have to suffer through the underperformance. That's exactly what we've seen from Sammy Watkins this year. It's why we weren't drafting him under any circumstances. He broke his foot in minicamp. It wasn't that long ago. You all have a calendar app on your phone. You can look at the days and months on your calendar and see, oh yeah, it's not realistic that a player would break his foot and be 100% to start the season. It's just not, mm. that's the most obvious thing. That's all I do is sit here and say obvious things and many of you hate me for it. These are not hot takes. Beware of Sammy Watkins' foot was never a hot take. It was just the most obvious statement in the history of fantasy football. And that, but there you all were, drafting Sammy Watkins, sometimes ahead of Brandon Cooks of all players. What are you doing? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I just don't, I don't know. 
I don't know why it feels like I'm playing a different game than most fantasy gamers, including most fantasy experts. I don't understand why it feels like I'm playing a different game. And the game I'm playing, things happen to be lining up right for me. And and last night, all I was thinking was, this must be some kind of dreamscape that I am in at this very moment. I'm at the point where I'm terrified of waking up. Because the only thing that can ruin this for me is if I wake up and I realize that none of this was real, right? That zero RB is not a dominant strategy. That Brandon Cooks isn't a superstar. That Eric Decker wasn't a tremendous value at his ADP. I feel like any moment I'm going to wake up and realize, oh, it was all a dream. Too many things are going right for this to be real. Just look at last night. Quincy Inunua? What? What? The guy I claim to have the most upside of any wide receiver in the late rounds, that Quincy Anunwa, he was leading all Jets in receptions and receiving yards at halftime and finished with six catches for 92 yards. Six catches on six targets. The ultra-efficient Quincy Anunwa. In the absence of a tight end in New York, Quincy Anunwa is going to receive a significant target share this season. We know he's usable now. It's official. He will be a flex consideration every week moving forward because the Jets do not have a tight end of consequence in the passing game. That makes Quincy Inunua the number three wide receiver slash number one tight end on the target totem pole. When you do the math on that player's target share and then you add Quincy Inunua's efficiency, you see, oh yeah, this guy's very usable because he is very usable. And if you go to playerprofiler.com, it became very apparent that Quincy Inunua is a player that you want to roster in Dynasty because he had age-adjusted college dominance, because he had elite size-adjusted athleticism. His best comparable player on playerprofiler.com is Josh Gordon. And like the Bills, the Jets are just another one of these incompetent franchises. You know they're incompetent because they drafted Christian Hackenberg in the second round. That's all you need to know about the Jets' prospect evaluation methodology and their roster construction blueprint. Spoiler alert, they don't have one. You also know this because the Jets drafted Jalen Saunders and Shaq Evans in 2014 before they drafted Quincy Inunua. The Jets lucked into Inunua the same way the Packers lucked into Jeff Janis. Just an oh-by-the-way throwaway draft pick at the end of a draft after the team already had drafted two receivers beforehand. But now Jeff Janis is clearly the best receiver on the Packers from that draft class, and Quincy Inunua is quite clearly the best wide receiver on the Jets from that draft class. And those in the Roto Underworld audience were rostering Quincy Inunua on their dynasty teams starting in 2014. So if you're in a league with someone that listens to Roto Underworld Radio, there's no chance you're going out to your waiver wire and picking up Quincy Inunua. It's not going to happen. We have a concierge program. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash concierge. You can sign up for personal advice from me. You can text me questions, email me questions, DM me questions. Should I trade Eric Decker? The answer is no. Every time, no. Eric Decker for no. Should I trade Eric Decker for that? I've been offered player X for Eric Decker. No. I also send out two newsletters per week, one with the best waiver wire pickups and another with the plays of the week in DFS, start, sit, those topics. And in the newsletter this week, Quincy Inunua was listed as the highest upside waiver wire target. So go to playerprofiler.com forward slash concierge 
and that allows you to support player profilers, support the show, and receive the best advice in fantasy football in the process. I want to talk about breakout wide receivers today, so we will have Matthew Friedman from Fantasy Labs on the show. One of Matthew Friedman's great skills is finding under-the-radar wide receivers, both in Dynasty and in redraft leagues. He knows how to identify sleeper receivers. He was the first to say that T.Y. Hilton would be a productive NFL wide receiver. He was the first to say John Brown would be a productive NFL wide receiver. So it was Matthew Friedman who discovered John Brown, not Matt Harmon. Matt Harmon, who quietly did not have a good week one. I say quietly because you are not inundated with 27 Allen Robinson and John Brown vines last Sunday. Allen Robinson and Matt Harmon's next Allen Robinson both underperformed in week one. John Brown and Matt Harmon's next John Brown also underperformed in week one. And these facts alone significantly diminish the traffic on my Twitter timeline. So on Sunday, I wasn't seeing the normal Matt Harmon GIF, some other guy. Matt Harmon GIF, some other guy. Matt Harmon GIF, some other guy. If I send out enough GIFs, people may forget that it was actually Matthew Friedman that discovered John Brown, not Matt Harmon. If I send out enough Allen Robinson GIFs, people might forget that it was actually Matthew Friedman's colleague at Fantasy Labs, Jonathan Bales, who said that Allen Robinson was the best wide receiver prospect in the 2014 draft. Jonathan Bales wrote a report for an NFL team stating that flatly two years before Matt Harmon's Allen Robinson reception perception. Matthew Friedman and Jonathan Bales from Fantasy Labs were touting Allen Robinson and John Brown before they broke out. Matt Harmon was touting them after they broke out. That's a big difference. And you know it's coming with Tajay Sharp. Oh, it's coming. Oh, this reception perception's gonna write itself. But it's gonna come out after John Moore and Kevin Cole from Rotoviz were telling you that Tajay Sharp was one of the best wide receivers in this class, even though he was drafted in the fifth round. So I'll be very interested to see how Tyler Lockett and John Brown do in week two. Because if Tyler Lockett and John Brown underwhelm in week one and week two, we might have to have a reception intervention. But I want to continue to talk about a player that's not on Matt Harmon's radar yet. Once he's obviously a good receiver, then we'll start to see reception perceptions on Quincy Anunwa, but not beforehand. So in the meantime, we'll have to ask Matt Friedman about Quincy Anunwa and what he believes Quincy Anunwa's future holds in the NFL. Looking at this box score, we've also talked a lot about Tyrod Taylor on this show and how Tyrod Taylor just needs to be unlocked, similar to Russell Wilson, one of the most efficient quarterbacks in the league. If you go to playerprofiler.com, look at Tyrod Taylor's 2015 production premium. That's that situation agnostic efficiency metric. Look at passer rating, look at QBR, look at air yards per attempt, look at fantasy points per drop back. By every efficiency measure, Tyrod Taylor was a top 10 quarterback last season. The only thing holding him back from being a top 10 fantasy football quarterback was volume. And what's the easiest way to obtain volume? With a bad defense. And that's exactly what Tyrod Taylor now has, a bad defense. 
So I'm incredibly excited about Tyrod Taylor in 2016. And sure enough, last night, 30 attempts, 300 yards, three touchdowns. And uh, 25 yards rushing just to sprinkle in a couple extra points for you. In case those three touchdowns weren't enough. But on cue, the buzzards attack. Oh, but you didn't like Tyrod Taylor this week. You didn't have him ranked very high. How can you say you were right about Tyrod Taylor? First of all, on the playerprofiler.com rankings, go there now, check them out. Tyrod Taylor's in the top 20. He's ahead of Jay Cutler, Dak Prescott, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Alex Smith, Brock Osweiler, Ryan Tannehill. We like Tyrod Taylor. And after two games, we know that Buffalo has one of the worst defenses in the league. And subpar defensive efficiency is more important to Tyrod Taylor's production this season than Sammy Watkins' health. The Buffalo Bills defense is measurably worse this season without star defenders like Marcel Darius. And if the Buffalo Bills are allowing the opposition to score a lot of points, then Tyrod Taylor will be unlocked. He'll be asked to throw the ball a lot and scramble and run for a lot of yards. And that means he's going to score a lot of fantasy points. That's how this works. And that's exactly what you saw last night. Oh, but you didn't like him this week. I liked him better than most. What are your expectations of me? That I am going to accurately predict the exact fantasy point output for every player every week? What the hell is wrong with you? If I could do that, I would become a professional sports gambler and shut down player profiler. If I knew exactly what was going to happen in every game, that would render playerprofiler.com obsolete. So, of course, I didn't know that Tyrod Taylor would throw for three touchdowns this week. I was pleasantly surprised with Tyrod Taylor's fantasy output this week. Yes, that's true. But that doesn't change the fundamental reason why we should all be rostering Tyrod Taylor in all formats. It doesn't nullify that fact. You can't believe I still have these sports Neanderthals playing the result, hitting me in the back of the head with rocks. You got his week two projection wrong, Manchin. Don't be that guy. Just please, don't be that guy. How hard is it not to be that guy? Not to be the play the result guy on weekly performances. Nobody knows precisely what's going to happen every week. All we can do is forecast player performances to the best of our ability. And on playerprofiler.com, we routinely beat the experts. That's all you can reasonably ask of us. But so many of you think you're the expert. Even though you follow me, I don't follow you. Hitting me with these tedious weekly questions as if I know what each individual player is going to do every week. The projections are based on a range of outcomes. And especially early in the season, that range of outcomes is very wide. Yet so many of you want to dive into the minutiae. It's try to agitate me with these banal individual player ranking questions. Challenging my judgment. Why are you not higher on Emmanuel Sanders? You know Demarius Thomas is banged up, don't you? No, I actually don't know. I can't measure exactly how banged up Demarius Thomas is. And because I can't measure exactly how banged up Demarius Thomas is, I can't substantially elevate Emmanuel Sanders in my rankings. But so many of you approach fantasy football as if you're Demarius Thomas's orthopedist. You don't know how injured he is, and even if you did, you don't know how that injury will affect his performance on Sunday. You don't. You're just being obnoxious, bothering me with these tired narratives you heard on other shows. Save it for some amateur orthopedist 
who moves players up and down his rankings based on his perception of how injured that player is. We don't do that. Why? Because I'm not a doctor. I never will be a doctor and neither will you. But guess what? We've had doctors on the show. We've had orthopedists on the show. We've had orthopedists like Sean Fitzsimmons write articles on playerprofiler.com. And when I ask them about specific players' injuries and how those injuries will affect their performance, do you know what those actual orthopedists tell me every time they say, I don't know. Just stop trying to know. Stop pretending you know. You don't know. Nobody knows. And those that think they know are lying. The actual orthopedists have told me, I don't know exactly how far along his healing and recovery are at this point. And even if I did, I couldn't be certain how it will affect his performance. If I was his orthopedist, I could give you an educated guess. But because I'm not that player's orthopedist, I can't even guess. Think about that. The orthopedists are saying that even that player's doctor would only be able to provide an educated guess. And yet Ryan from New Jersey is challenging my ranking of Emmanuel Sanders because of his perception of Demarius Thomas's health. Let the stupidity of that sink in for a moment. But you should own Tyrod Taylor in your dynasty leagues. There's no excuse. You could get him on the waiver wire a little over a year ago. You should all own him by now in your dynasty leagues. I own him in every single dynasty league with the exception of the dynasty leagues that were created specifically for the fans of the Roto Underworld show. When you go to a normal dynasty league team where I'm just playing against a bunch of generic fantasy people, in those leagues, I always own Tyrod Taylor, Tevin Coleman, David Johnson, Tyler Lockett, Jordan Matthews. Austin Safarian Jenkins. In every league, every league like that, I own those players. Those are the players we talk about the most on this show. But in those Roto Underworld Dynasty leagues, I'm competing against 11 other minions. So they're climbing over one another to get Allen Robinson, to get Jordan Matthews, to get Jeff Janis. There is a Dynasty league in which I do not own Jeff Janis. It exists. There's digital evidence of the existence of of a Matt Kelly-owned dynasty team in which Jeff Janis does not appear on the roster. Why? Because I'm competing against 11 of you! And those leagues are 10 times as challenging as the generic dynasty leagues that I'm in, where I could just use player profiler to run roughshod on the competition. And many of you want to become more involved with the show, and we have a way for you to do that. Go to playerprofiler.com forward slash podcasts. There you can click learn more and become an official show minion or buzzard. When you do that, you'll set up a monthly donation schedule and you will receive either an official Roto Underworld t-shirt or an official Roto Underworld hoodie. And it will have either minion or buzzard emblazoned on it. Many of you have been listening to this show for a long time for free. And I know there's a tinge of guilt that you've been consuming and consuming and consuming and giving nothing back. Well, this is a way for you now to relieve yourself of that guilt and give back. This is how the show becomes a symbiotic relationship, not a one-way street where I just give, 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 and you take, 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 take. And you also win fantasy championships too. 
but there is an interesting question. As much as I like Tyrod Taylor, why didn't I have him ranked higher this week? The problem is we had him projected for 17 fantasy points. It's just that the other quarterbacks in the league are doing so well. It's not that we're not appreciating Tyrod Taylor. It's that we're also appreciating the tremendous performances of so many of the other quarterbacks around the league, from Derek Carr to Jameis Winston to Matthew Stafford. Did you want us to have Tyrod Taylor ranked ahead of Matthew Stafford this week? That would have been asinine. We couldn't rank Tyrod Taylor ahead of Stafford. We couldn't rank him ahead of Flacco. We couldn't rank him ahead of Winston. We couldn't rank him ahead of Derek Carr. Just can't do it. We have Derek Carr and Tyrod Taylor ranked in the same neighborhood because we don't overreact to week one performances on both the offensive and defensive side of the ball. We try to maintain perspective. Just because Derek Carr had success against the New Orleans Saints defense doesn't mean he's automatically going to shred the next opponent. It's the New Orleans Saints. And on the other side of that, we're not going to elevate Matt Ryan into the top 10 either just because he's facing an Oakland defense that was shredded the previous week by Drew Brees at New Orleans. Yeah. We went into the season thinking that Oakland would have an above-average defense, and just because they gave up a lot of yards to Drew Brees and Brandon Cooks, two phenomenal talents, that doesn't mean we're immediately going to significantly discount the Oakland Raiders' defense and upstack Matt Ryan this week. It's not going to happen. And you can check out all our projections for week two and our player rankings. Playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. And as I mentioned, we have Joe Flacco ranked ahead of Tyrod Taylor. I like Joe Flacco this week. If you're a member of the concierge program and you asked me, should I drop Tyrod Taylor? I probably said no. Stick with him unless you can get your hands on Jameis Winston or perhaps even Joe Flacco because Joe Flacco is playing Cleveland this week. Cleveland made Carson Wentz look good. Think about that. So we like Joe Flacco this week. Brashad Perriman played and looked healthy. Mike Wallace looked rejuvenated. Steve Smith was productive. So Joe Flacco's weapons happen to be better than advertised this year. And he has a great matchup. So that's why we have Joe Flacco in the top 12. But maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe I'll get Joe Flacco wrong. And guess what happens if I get Joe Flacco wrong? Nothing. Nothing. Because this isn't just sports which in and of itself is just entertainment. This is a game layered on top of a sport. In the big picture, whether or not your fantasy football projection about a particular player in a particular week is correct may be the most meaningless thing in the history of human civilization. So if I'm wrong about a player this week, oh well, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. There's one thing I think we could all agree on, though. Vegas agrees. The DFS experts agree. The Giants-Saints game is going to be an offensive explosion. And on Player Profiler, we now have a lineup optimizer. We take the projections and we run an algorithm that matches the projections to the prices on FanDuel and DraftKings. And then we give you optimal lineups. Not just for cash games. That's easy. We give you 10 high-volatility tournament lineups. So we assign a premium to the players like A.J. Green that oscillate dramatically up and down every week. Those players are the best to play in a tournament setting. So naturally, the machine loves Brandon Cooks this week. But I also implemented some heuristics into the equation. We had Jonathan Bales from Fantasy Labs on the show a few months ago. And he told us that being successful in GPPs 
requires heuristics and analytics. It requires math skills and a great imagination. So of our 10 GPP lineups, 10 for DraftKings, 10 for FanDuel, we have some more heuristically driven lineups available to you. One of them is the all Giants and Saints lineup. Eli Manning, Mark Ingram, Shane Vereen, Odell Beckham, Brandon Cooks, Willie Sneed, Kobe Fleener. That is a $60,000 FanDuel lineup that I just listed. That lineup is possible. So if that game ends up being 45-44, you have a good chance of finishing very highly, even if some of those players have high ownership. Because you've gone out to the extreme and you've stacked the entire game, you still have a good chance of finishing near the top in the event that game is just the shootout of the shootouts. As it was last year, the Saints-Giants game was the most prolific shootout of 2015. Most people agree Saints-Giants is going to be a prolific shootout again in 2016. The schedule is working in our favor. We get Giants-Saints two consecutive years. That is just fortunate. The Giants and Saints will have their work cut out for them just outscoring last night's game. That was a 37-31 game. What's going on? Well, we predicted this before the season. The reason it was harder to push ascending quarterbacks like Jameis Winston into the top 10 in the preseason was because we knew we were on the precipice of an NFL offensive resurgence in that teams and skill position players were going to break numerous records for yards and points scored this year. It was going to happen due to a confluence of factors last season. Injuries to some big-name quarterbacks in particular. There was a lull in offensive output, but we predicted a surge in offensive output this season, and that's what we're seeing. That's why it's going to be really hard for a player like Derek Carr to become a QB1 in fantasy this year because he's competing against a bunch of other prolific quarterbacks. Look at the top 10 just for this week. Cam Newton, Eli Manning, Matthew Stafford, Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, Carson Palmer, Andrew Luck. Ben Roethlisberger, Blake Bortles, Russell Wilson. That's a hard list to crack right there. Now, a high-rising running back is Tevin Coleman. The two most comforting statistics from week one for me, Tevin Coleman's snap share and opportunity share. Opportunity share is his share of team carries and team targets splitting evenly with Devontae Freeman. Very comforting. Stephon Diggs, 27% target share, top 15 in the league. He could easily finish the season in the top 10 in NFL target share because Stephon Diggs is the absolute focal point of that Vikings passing game. Just can't make it up. You just can't make this up. I own Tevin Coleman in every league that's not a Roto Underworld Minion League, Dynasty and Redraft. It was too easy. Acquiring Tevin Coleman in Dynasty and Redraft over the last couple years has just been way too easy. So to watch Tevin Coleman accumulate more receptions in Week 1 than Devontae Freeman, that was the stat of the week for me. So I think the Devontae Freeman enthusiasts are panicking and they're trying to control the narrative. So what I'm hearing about Devontae Freeman versus Tevin Coleman is as follows, that Devontae Freeman is good at everything, but Tevin Coleman is only good at one thing. Tevin Coleman's only good at running fast and open spaces, but Devontae Freeman's good at everything. Yes, yes, he is. Yeah, sure. Yeah, isn't he? No, he's not. Is he not? Hmm. No, see, as it turns out, Devontae Freeman posted a 17.8% college dominator. That was 20th percentile. 
his 40 time, his burst score, and his agility score all below the 50th percentile on playerprofiler.com. His best comparable player is James White. If you were starting a franchise today, you would start with Tevin Coleman, not Devontae Freeman. I like Devontae Freeman. I think he's good. I have always thought that Devontae Freeman was going to be a productive fantasy player, particularly in PPR. He's a less explosive Giovanni Bernard. That's how I classified him two years ago, and I've seen nothing to change that assessment. No player was a bigger beneficiary of random events and outcomes on the football field than Devontae Freeman last year. And the metrics on playerprofiler.com illuminate this. Devontae Freeman's 2015 production premium, that situation agnostic efficiency metric measuring how he performed against league average in all different down and distance game situations, plus 10.4. That's good. It's not great. It's 29th in the league. Yards per carry, 4.0, 46th in the league. Yards per touch, he's great in the passing game, so his yards per touch must be elevated. Devontae Freeman's yards per touch last year, 4.9. That was 41st in the league. What about his juke rate? Evaded tackles per touch. Devontae Freeman was one of the league leaders in evaded tackles because he was one of the league leaders in carries. He was top five in the league in carries, so he was also top 10 in evaded tackles. But using playerprofiler.com's elusiveness metric, juke rate, it's revealed that Devontae Freeman wasn't particularly evasive last year. His evaded tackles per touch was only 24.6%. That was 46th in the league. That's why we never ranked Devontae Freeman in the top five dynasty running backs. We just refused all year. Even last year when he was number one in the NFL in fantasy points per game at age 23. We refused to elevate him into the top five because we believed what we were seeing was significantly driven by random chance. And now we know, based on the touch distribution in week one, that the Falcons coaches agree with us. So now if you go to our dynasty rankings on playerprofiler.com, based on what we saw in week one, Tevin Coleman is ranked ahead of Devontae Freeman in dynasty. Because Tevin Coleman is not a one-dimensional, straight-line burner. That's not who he is. In his final season at Indiana, Tevin Coleman was one of the NCAA leaders in yards after contact, and he posted an 11.1% college target share that was 79th percentile. So at Indiana, Tevin Coleman was breaking a lot of tackles and catching a lot of passes out of the backfield. He is not a one-dimensional player. In fact, I would argue Tevin Coleman has a more well-rounded skill set than Devontae Freeman because Devontae Freeman is not a competent runner between the tackles. Tevin Coleman absolutely is. We are the only fantasy site that has Tevin Coleman ranked ahead of Devontae Freeman in Dynasty. Because when we run our lifetime value formula on a 23-year-old Tevin Coleman versus a 24-year-old Devontae Freeman, we have Tevin Coleman significantly outproducing Devontae Freeman over the course of their respective careers. And we saw this 50-50 touch distribution coming. We talked about it all offseason. We would have seen it last year if Tevin Coleman didn't break his ribs and then fall in the shower and have to be put on IR with a severe concussion. It took a shower fall to knock Tevin Coleman out. He was knocked out for the year after falling in the shower. That happened. Assuming he doesn't fall in the shower again. Tevin, wear flip-flops in the shower. Wear something on your feet. Those little suction cups. It doesn't matter. Stay upright in the shower. 
and you will outproduce Devontae Freeman in all formats this season. But you may not own Tevin Coleman in any league. Even though we continue to repeat the mantra, zero RB, zero RB, zero RB, zero RB. Draft Tevin Coleman, draft Tevin Coleman, draft Tevin Coleman. Maybe you're new to the show. Maybe you're just now hearing about Tevin Coleman and you're having an aha moment. There is a way to capitalize on this knowledge. Go to Tevin Coleman's page on playerprofiler.com and in the center of the page it says, play Tevin Coleman now on no halftime. I love no halftime. Because I've always wanted an app like No Halftime to exist. I just didn't think it was legal. Because No Halftime facilitates side bets between friends. So if you think Tevin Coleman's going to score 12 fantasy points this weekend, and you know your buddy is a Devontae Freeman zealot, what do you do? You go to the playerprofiler.com player page, click on Play Tevin Coleman Now on No Halftime, and send a side bet request to that friend. And then no halftime facilitates the side bet and the payouts. I can't believe this is legal. When I found out this was legal, we immediately put the link up on playerprofiler.com in the most high visibility spot on the page. So now you can set up a side bet for any player from any page on playerprofiler.com with a click using no halftime. It's amazing. I already have 17 side bets set up with my friends. Do it, do it now. So that's the thing to do this weekend. Download No Halftime and start setting up some side bets. Now, let's go talk to Matthew Friedman. He is one of my good friends in the industry. He's the editor-in-chief of FantasyLabs.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at MattFTheOracle. Let's go talk to Matthew Friedman. Welcome to Roto Underworld Radio, my nemesis. The ultimate enthusiasm temperer, Matthew Friedman from Fantasy Labs. Talk to me. What am I doing on your show? This is what I'm talking about. This is it. This is the perfect counterpoint, the counterbalance to the last show where it was just dance music and celebrations. Now we bring you on. It's the other end of the spectrum, the yin and the yang, Roto Underworld Radio shows. I want to get into your new role at Fantasy Labs. The last time we talked, you were at Rotoviz. You were the king of Rotoviz Radio. You ruled that empire with an iron fist. Now you're at Fantasy Labs. We haven't talked in a while, and I want to get caught up. What have you been up to? So at Fantasy Labs, I am busy being the editor-in-chief, which sounds much more impressive than it is. Basically, I wake up really early and I edit lots of articles. Uh, and then I, uh, you know, help with the projections. We've got a lot of great NFL tools that are new for this season. Um, of, I heard. Of course, we are a, a DFS-focused site, uh, so a lot of our tools are specific for DFS, but I think that lots of players in general can benefit from the tools we have. For instance, one of the great things we have is a matchups tool, uh, so you can look at this and visualize the defenders that different wide receivers will be going up against, right? So it's not enough to say like, oh, this this defense is really bad. They get exposed a lot in the passing game. Uh, you have to know the specific defenders that your wide receivers are actually going to be going against for the majority of their routes. So there are a lot of different things at Fantasy Labs that, again, benefit DFS players, but I think other people in general can also benefit because there's just a lot of football knowledge there. 
Is there a Belichick factor that you all insert in the cases where the opposing coach thinks that you're going to put defender X on wide receiver Y, and so because they know that you think that that's what they're going to do, they go ahead and change the defensive scheme? Yeah, that's a good question. So the amount of time that we actually spend uh, talking back and forth about which uh, cornerbacks should be matched up with the wide receivers, whether a guy's going to play his right cornerback spot the way he traditionally was, or whether they're going to have him shadow the team's number one receiver. Yes, the shadowing, the shadow factor. How much of a shadow factor will there be? Yes. Yeah, we, we talk about that uh, quite a bit, actually. Um, but, you know, in the end, you have to look at just kind of historical precedent of what those teams have done in the past and then try to extrapolate and see how comparable the situation is now to what you saw before. So there definitely is guesswork, uh, but there's not too much game theory that goes into it because in the end, a lot of NFL coaches, I say with the exception of a few guys like Belichick, uh, they are pretty much creatures of habit and you can start to anticipate what they do. That would be a question if you've identified the coaches that are often breaking the model who are deploying defenders differently from game to game in a way that's harder to predict than the generic coach, probably only a couple of those in the league, so it becomes negligible. We had Jonathan Bales on the show last year. Pretty smart guy. Do you remember one thing that Jonathan Bales told you since you started where you just stopped in your tracks and you had an aha moment? No, I think he's, he's told me not to fuck up. I think that's maybe like the, the closest thing where it was like an aha moment. I mean, obviously, Bales is a smart guy. I think what I actually enjoy about uh, the conversations I have with him, one, is that he's very business oriented. Like he's, you know, he's a CEO of a startup. He's very focused on the product. While wearing a tank top. Well, of course, yeah. Very, very business, uh, like a mullet, you know, but um, he's, he's very focused on business. At the same time, a lot of what he says in terms of football knowledge, it's all stuff that's very common sense. I think what's great about him is not that he has amazing insights that people, uh, you know, have to like research their whole lives to find. It's that he's very good at synthesizing information from different areas and putting it all together. Okay, so he hasn't told you anything you didn't already know. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> yes, that's a roundabout way to say exactly that. Have you met Mark Cuban yet? No, I have not. Okay, good answer. They, they don't want me to meet him. I would embarrass the company. You're very professional. I don't know why you have this disposition. This, that's not true. You're, you're putting on an act. This isn't you. <laughs> you would be a great face of the company. Stop it. Fantasy Labs, as you said earlier, DFS-focused. And we don't do a lot of DFS talk on the show, but heading into week two, we're in a DFS hot zone. Everybody is getting back into Daily Fantasy now that their states have regulated it and it's legal again. So there's a lot of excitement, and I want to bring more DFS to Roto Underworld Radio. So which game this week do you see as being a sneaky shootout? We all know Giant Saints. Okay, Giant Saints. Okay, got it. Okay, I got it. Giant Saints. Got it. Is there another game that you think Vegas is sleeping on? A game that could be 35-31 that no one's really talking about stacking on? Yeah, and so the the answer that I'm going to give, it's it's actually fairly traditional. It's like a contrarian take on a game that people have half right. And it's actually the 49ers-Panthers game. 
because what you have there is a a 45 point over under the Panthers are implied to score right now 29 and a half points that is a slate high but people are entirely discounting the other side of that matchup they're looking at the 49ers the 49ers right now are implied for only 16 points I think it's pretty easy to imagine just various scenarios in which they score another touchdown, right? And if they do that, all of a sudden, that is the highest scoring game of the entire slate. You have a Chip Kelly offense that's going to be moving the ball fast. You have a Panthers defense that is not what it was last year. They are still good, but they do not have the secondary that they had last year. And so all it takes is one long touchdown from Torrey Smith going against two rookie cornerbacks on either side, right? That is, that's entirely feasible. All it takes is one splash play that people aren't anticipating. And then this is a much closer game. So there are a lot of people who are already on the Panthers side. They're thinking about ways of stacking the Panthers. I think no one is really wanting to stack on the 49ers. I think a way of of getting a lot of exposure to the Panthers, but doing it in a contrarian and unique way would be to get exposure to the 49ers at the same time. Maybe. It's possible. Yeah, anything's possible. The guy I like the most on the 49ers at his price point is Vance McDonald, but he's going up against Luke Keekley, so that's the only problem. I wish I could play Vance McDonald. I think Torrey Smith is the guy there. We are recording Thursday night. And Marquise Goodwin just scored an 84-yard touchdown. So when you're talking about long touchdowns from Torrey Smith or Marquise Goodwin, give us your one cheap, sneaky play of the weekend. If you want a top-heavy lineup with a super cheap wide receiver, who would it be? Uh, Man, so this is kind of going out there a little bit, but I would go with uh, Tyreek Hill for Kansas City Chiefs. Because this is a guy who has already scored a touchdown. He scored a touchdown last week. But the thing is, he's also a return man, right? So you have the Chiefs going against the Texans. If you were interested in in kind of stacking in a unique way, you could stack Tyreek Hill with the Chiefs defense. And if he gets a touchdown, you're obviously double dipping right there at that moment by multiplying uh, your, your touchdown potential there. Wasn't that the tactic that your other boss, Peter Jennings, talked about on the Fantasyland podcast? Is that like a loophole? That's, that's like a loophole. I wouldn't say it's a loophole. I, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's an, another way of stacking, just like a quarterback throwing to a wide receiver, right? It's just a way of multiplying the times in which a touchdown can count for something. It's kind of a loophole. It's not really a loophole. <laughs> So again, this game is happening, and what we're witnessing today is more Quincy Inunua target dominance. He already has three targets, and he's caught all three for 55 yards. Quincy Inunua! He lives in that nexus of college dominance and size-adjusted athleticism, Matthew Friedman. This is the prospect that the prospect evaluation models are often pointing to, just like they pointed to Tajay Sharp this year, and he's already breaking out. Well, that same model, that same approach, pointed to Quincy Inunua three years ago when he graduated from Nebraska, and now here he is getting more targets than Eric Decker and Brandon Marshall combined. What? 
Are you wanting me to say something on that? Just comment. You talked earlier about Anunwa, and you had this interesting perspective on how they're using him. And this was me teeing you up to talk about your unique perspective on how the Jets use Quincy Anunwa. This is me just teeing it up for you. This, I'm setting it up for you to spike it away. I have no recollection of what you're talking about. This is just classic Matt Kelly kind of making stuff up. We talked but, before the show about how the Jets have abandoned the tight end position altogether and they've turned to a wide receiver to play tight end. It's a unique tactical approach. You just took my take. <laughs> we just talked about that before the show and I was teeing you up to give it and then I said that we talked about it earlier and then you denied us ever talking about it. So then you forced me to regurgitate the take you gave off air. So what do you think about Quincy Anunwa? Uh Man, I don't know. I, I think it's one of those situations where right now he's getting these targets that would traditionally be going to a tight end. Um, he's basically a smaller version of like a, a Jimmy Graham type of weapon right now. Mm. Uh, I would be curious to see how they can get away with this in the running game. Um, because they haven't been all that good in the running game so far. I think eventually they will miss having that bigger body that can actually function as both a blocker and a pass catcher. Right now, they're not really getting that. And I'm sort of unconvinced that what we are seeing right now with Inunua is something that is hugely sustainable. Um, he's a guy who is getting targets, not all that many targets, but he's getting targets because the defense is focused on two other larger playmakers. And then also you have Matt Forte, who might be, uh, I guess, getting a little more of the defensive attention. I don't really know if this is something that's sustainable, where in week 15 we're like, yep, I rode Anunua all the way to a championship. Anunua has a 116.3 96th percentile height-adjusted speed score and a 41.7% 81st percentile college dominator. He was great in college, and he's an athletic specimen. So we shouldn't be surprised that this is who he has become. He's only 24 years old. I think he's siphoning targets away from an aging Brandon Marshall and an aging Eric Decker. I think it's a natural evolution. I love the innovation of installing Quincy Anunwa as essentially an H-back. Why don't more offensive coordinators innovate? I want offensive coordinators to push the formations out to the extremes. One team should just abolish the tight end like the Jets are doing, and then another team should go three tight end sets as their base offense. I would love to see a lot more variety in offensive formations and offensive philosophy, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, the thing I do like is Chan Gailey is the type of offensive coordinator who just doesn't give a fuck. Just straight up, he doesn't care. Like, if there's something that he thinks actually is the optimal thing for his team, that's what he's going to do whether anyone else is, is thinking about it or not. So uh, Kansas City Chiefs 2008, I think it was an undrafted, like Tyler Thigpen, right? Like undrafted quarterback from a small school. You know, it's like, okay, that's what we have. We're going to spread the formation. We're going to let him throw the ball around. 400 yards. So if, if there is an offensive coordinator out there who is, uh, I wouldn't say even like innovative enough, but who's just sort of like reckless enough 
to try something that no one else would entertain, Chan Gailey is one of those guys. I actually really do like him as an offensive coordinator. He's unconventional. Please, we need more unconventional. The NFL is so fucking conventional. More unconventional, please. A fantasy football draft strategy that was unconventional is now becoming conventional, and that's zero RB. And I'm not sure if this is a sore subject for you because for many years you were a major proponent of robust RB. But it seems that robust RB has been murdered in the street by zero RB. Do you agree? Are you now won over? Are you now implementing zero RB in your redraft leagues? Yeah, it's a very format-specific approach for me. So obviously, if I'm playing in those PPR leagues, which I think now are basically standard for people who are in the industry, who are sort of like degenerates like we are, mm-hmm. right? We, we play PPR. Uh, and we also play in a lot of formats where you do have more wide receivers uh, than running backs in terms of your starting lineup. In those types of formats, I think it does make a lot of sense to go zero RB, and that's what I normally do. If I'm playing best ball and I don't have the opportunity to access the waiver wire, I normally still lean a little more toward the running back position early in the draft. If I'm playing in like my old school high school league with friends, which for some unknown reason is still standard slash non-PPR, then I think you have a situation where those ancillary running backs who can contribute more as pass catchers, they're not worth quite as much. So the zero RB strategy doesn't work quite as well in that format. In that format, I still tend to go a little more uh, robust. But the thing is, I've always... It's a mistake. (laughs) Well, I I mean, I think it really does just depend on, on the format, on the people who are in your league. Um, And also on where your particular strengths lie. So for instance, I think I'm actually pretty good at finding late round uh, wide receivers, you know, uh, guys like T.Y. Hilton, who end up doing well as rookies. Uh, I think Will Fuller is a guy this year who's going to end up doing well as a rookie. Like, I think I'm better at spotting value later in the draft at wide receiver. Quincy Inunua? That guy's coming off of waivers. But no, I I get what you're saying. Like, I I think I'm better at finding value later in the draft with wide receivers than I am at running backs because I think running back is just more random, right? It's more of an opportunity driven thing, whereas I think wide receiver is more talent driven. So uh, for me, if I know that I have an elevated chance of finding value at wide receivers later in the draft, uh, I, I tend to adjust my strategy according to that but yeah i mean zero rb it is a dominant strategy in ppr leagues and i i think people who are denying that uh are doing it maybe because they just don't play in the ppr format as much so they don't have that point of view that would enable them to have the open mind of thinking about that strategy it is the dominant strategy yes it is Matthew Friedman, late-round wide receiver expert from Fantasy Labs, is on the Roto Underworld radio show with me today. If you were going to pick between Dontrell Inman, Tyrell Williams, Matthew Friedman, late-round wide receiver expert, if you don't think so, just ask him, who is he picking up off waivers? You know, I'm actually... (laughs) Fantastic question. I see you laughing there. You're, like, tickling yourself. Um, you know, I'm actually not a huge fan of either one of those guys. I, I don't think you're going to get Keenan Allen type of production from them. And, and so I, I think 
what people tend to do if there's an injury, especially at the wide receiver position. If it's been an injury, Matt! Ooh, why she's bit on everybody? <laughs> yeah, if there's an injury at the wide receiver position. He's out for the year! What they hope is that they pick up a guy who is an automatic one-for-one replacement. And that almost never happens. Never. Right? And, and so I think... Ever. The, you can pick up Dontrell Inman. I think he's probably going to get a little more of, of the action from the slot. Um, I think of those two, he's probably the guy. But I don't think he's the guy that you are putting in your lineup. I think the guy that you are putting in your lineup to replace that production from Keenan Allen is someone who is already on your bench. Like Quincy Anunwa. If he somehow is already on your bench, but I doubt even then that he would be the guy. But hey, right now, as we are recording this, he has two more receptions and he's now at 90 yards. He's, he's crushing it, Matthew Friedman. I mean, this is the guy that Matthew Friedman picks up because Matthew Friedman has a particular set of skills that include finding the late round wide receivers every time. Exactly. That's exactly what I said. I do make myself laugh with some of these questions set up. You're right. You're also a Cowboys fan. And today, in particular, for some reason, I happen to see a number of horrific dynasty trades involving Des Bryant come across my desk. What the fuck is going on with people and Des Bryant? Are they selling him too low? Yeah. I don't get it. So, you know, and I, I say this as someone who entered fantasy sports really from the dynasty perspective. Like that was what made me become obsessed with fantasy sports. And so, you know, obviously I love redraft. I love daily fantasy sports. I think the issue is that there are people who are taking too short term of an approach and too, uh, I think, opportunity focused of an approach when it comes to dynasty. So, for instance, DFS and even redraft leagues, that is much more driven by opportunity. It's like, what are you going to get out of a guy within this very narrow time frame? Either like this game or the next five games, like the remaining games of the season. But when it comes to dynasty, I think you have to be much more focused on talent, right? And trust that in the end, talent is what will win out. Or even if you don't really believe in talent, but you believe in like a particular set of characteristics, right? And you think that that will win out. Like guys who have good size and speed and, you know, production from college, like the, the things that, you know, you want to check off on your list. Tajay Sharp was number one on John Moore's Phenom Index on Rotoviz. That's true. We have to tip our cap to John Moore, our friend, who's now at Pro Football Focus. That Tajay Sharp call, seeing him sorted into the number one position on the Phenom Index in March... That was impressive. I know sometimes you guys don't always get along anymore, but you have to give him that, right? I mean, you have to, Matt. You have to. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't characterize what you just said as being accurate. John and I get along. But no, John obviously is, is a very sharp guy. And uh, no, he was, you know, he he looks very Oracle-esque, I would say, with that, with that Tajay Sharp call. Oh, yes! And, you know, there are a number of other guys really smart at Rotoviz. Kevin Cole also really likes Tajay Sharp. Um, you know, I, I have to say, I'm not 
really on the Tajay Sharp train. If I'm totally wrong about that, like that's that's fine. That's going to be one I end up missing on. I think my perspective on Tajay Sharp is maybe informed by the fact that I was, uh, you know, very focused on college football DFS last year, Tajay Sharp's last year in college. And so uh, obviously I, I like a guy who can get lots of receptions and gets yards, but he never scored touchdowns, right? And so my feeling was, why would I focus on this guy when I could be focusing on someone like Corey Coleman, right? Who was getting a lot of touchdowns. Yeah, 20 touchdowns in the first eight games. Boom. Woof, woof. <laughs> I have to start, I have to unbutton my shirt just thinking about that. <laughs> You need some. Uh, you need some Gatorade there. Re- replenish all the salt that you're losing. Oh, oh yes, it's it's hot in here. Oh, Corey Coleman, he's hot. I only questioned whether or not Tajay Sharp, at age 21, coming from UMass, could immediately become the number one wide receiver for an NFL team. I was foolish enough to doubt that in early August. <laughs> Tajay Sharp is unprecedented at this point. Yeah, he is. And that is also, that's sort of like the key of my uh, early anti-Tajay position. We are talking about something that's unprecedented. And I don't like to do that until we've actually seen a little bit of regular season action. More than a game. Yeah. Because we don't have a fantasy viable receiver in the league that has Tajay Sharp's low BMI. It doesn't exist. This is a guy who doesn't really fit the prototype of what you are looking for. And that's fine. Like there are guys who don't fit the prototype who end up having success. Like it does happen. Like Antonio Brown, he doesn't fit the prototype, you know, but he's a guy who is, who's fantastic. Tajay Sharp is a little snowflake. He's just a snowflake. He's unique. There's no one ever been like him. He's just a beautiful snowflake, just blowing in the wind, falling to the ground in Tennessee, only to land and melt away into nothing. (laughs) No, he's pretty good. He's actually pretty good. A guy that did absolutely nothing in week one. By absolutely nothing, I mean he didn't touch the field. Like, his cleats never touched the green part of the field. He played zero snaps on the complete opposite end of the spectrum from Tajay Sharp was Laquan Treadwell. I mean, does this illuminate a long-term problem that the first-round pick doesn't play? You know, not really. Um, it's it's not a great look. But the thing is, this is not an offense that is very focused on using his specific set of skills anyway. And he's young. Like, there is the possibility that he's a little bit rough. But in the end, this is a guy who's big He was productive in the SEC at a young age. He was a first-round pick. I think at some point he sees the field. What I would actually hope is that he continues not to see the field for a little bit. And the person who spent, you know, like the number two or number three overall draft pick on him in Dynasty ends up selling him cheap. Yeah, sours on him, exactly, because he can't supplant Charles Johnson, a guy that continues to get starts and continues to do nothing and I just want him to be good, and he just refuses to be good. It's also a little bit harder now that Teddy Bridgewater has been lost with an injury that we've also never seen. The theme of this show is unprecedented. Tajay Sharp, unprecedented. Teddy Bridgewater's injury, unprecedented. But I go to Twitter. Even though it's an unprecedented injury, so many fantasy footballers seem to be experts. 
in the field of orthopedic medicine. So many people were so sure that Victor Cruz was finished. Oh, we'll never see Jimmy Graham play another snap in the NFL. Oh, forget Teddy Bridgewater. The Vikings will be lucky if Teddy Bridgewater is ready to play in week one. Why do so many people think they're doctors? You know, it's funny. I think in part it's because there's some sort of survivorship bias. You already have so many people in this field who think that they're experts at fantasy football when they're not. Uh, so since they're already under that assumption, can't all be Matthew Friedman. Why, why, why not pretend just to be an expert in one more thing? You know, um, I, I think there's also this, this instinct to assume that, uh, when you see something that that's gruesome or you hear something that's gruesome, that that is sort of like the end of everything. But you know, the fact is, uh, there aren't really all that many Marcus Lattimore's Right. Like it's right. it's relatively rare that a guy suffers that sort of like be all end all injury. For the most part, guys can come back. Oh, another catch for a Nunwa. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> there you go. We we need an Anunwa counter. You know, anyway, for the most part, guys can come back. You know, so I think Dennis Pitt is back, Matthew. Dennis Pitt is back. Dennis Pitt is back. Yeah, the fact that Dennis Pitta is the starting tight end yes! on the on, on the on the Ravens. They <laughs> actually stuck with him that long throughout all of this. The teams are sticking with these guys. You probably should too on your dynasty teams. Yeah, I mean it's it's all about like how how much value a guy might end up having to you. Like if you think Teddy Bridgewater was kind of trash anyway. And even if he comes back, he's not going to be all that great of a quarterback. Then fine, you can you can drop him, whatever. You can trade him, whatever. But yeah, I think we need to be a little less certain on our medical takes because there are guys who end up sort of like defying the Twitter medical knowledge all the time. We've had a handful of relevant players suffer certain rare injuries like torn patellars. And you can't give me Ryan Williams. He was never good in the first place. Achilles tears. You can't give me Mikel LaShore. He was never good in the first place. You take a good player, he tears a muscle, it heals, he comes back a lesser version of what he was. A lesser version of Arian Foster is still a very good player. A lesser version of Mikel LaShore isn't in the league. It's not hard to figure this out, but the whole starting point is, we're not doctors! So stop thinking you're a doctor! And stop asserting these things on Twitter as if they're absolute truths. You know that Victor Cruz isn't coming back. You sound foolish saying that. Not you, the faceless Twitter mob. The faceless Twitter mob, many of them are Dynasty players. Dynasty is interesting. You talked about how some people are only focused on short-term opportunity when they're evaluating Dynasty trades. I think that the Dynasty owner often falls on one end of the spectrum or the other. Either he's focused too long-term and he's trading productive players for picks constantly in this constantly churning hamster wheel of fantasy football mediocrity. You have those owners on one side and you have other owners overreacting on the other and you have a couple owners in the middle that are just siphoning off the talent from everyone else and they're the ones that are winning the Dynasty League each and every year. And the player those owners do not own is Kevin White. Kevin White is horrific. Am I wrong? He's another version of Brashad Perryman, you know? I mean, the guys who lose their first year in the league to injuries, um, that's never a great thing for them anyway. I think there's maybe still time 
for him, but it doesn't look good so far. Productivity-wise, he was crushed by Eddie Royal in both opportunity and efficiency. I mean, what's going on? I mean, this guy had one good season at age 22 in an up-tempo spread attack at West Virginia. Come on. Well, yes, but at the same time, you're looking at one game, a guy's first game in the NFL, and sort of downgrading him because he's he's outproduced by a guy who has made it a pattern of outproducing better players year after year with these random spurts of touchdowns. I like Eddie Royal. Why can't I like Eddie Royal? People like Justin Forsett. He's a little engine that could. Why can't I like Eddie Royal, a little engine that could? Well, you can like Eddie Royal, and that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, you can't say that Kevin White is horrible just because Eddie Royal outproduced him. Eddie Royal has made a career of outproducing guys no one thought he had any business outproducing. Very true. But I also have a whole series of videos on the Roto Underworld Radio YouTube channel that lays out my case in excruciating detail for selling, avoiding, getting as far away from Kevin White as possible. Let me ask you one question. Do you own Kevin White in any leagues? No, I don't. There it is. Do you own Tevin Coleman in a league? I wish I did, but I do not. Oh, you don't? No, I wish I did. Oh, you don't. Oh, it feels so good, Matt. Matt, it feels so good to own him. I know. I can I can only imagine. I did try in my oh. one really hardcore dynasty league to acquire him. But the thing is, like, guys are so recalcitrant in that league where once they get someone, like, they're not, they're not trading him. You know, like you have to like you have to trade Antonio Brown to get something of, of lesser value just because people have skewed senses of value in that league. You know, those movies with the orcs and they're at the gates and they're pushing and they're pushing and they're pushing and they're smashing and they're smashing and they're pushing and they're pushing. And, they're pushing and you know, it's just a matter of time unless Gandalf comes down from the hill with a whole separate army and whatever. Yeah, those were great movies. You know if you were standing just on the other side of that gate that's about to be smashed, at some point you would know that it's over and you could feel this surge of just death approaching you. And I think you would eventually look up in an instant and just knowing that it's over, a peaceful acceptance would wash over you. And I think this is the moment that Devontae Freeman owners are having in their dynasty leagues. They had an opportunity to trade Devontae Freeman for a king's ransom. And that offer is now off the table across the board. It's gone. And it's never coming back. And the noises you hear of this orcish army, that's Tevin Coleman. Because he's coming. It's the most certain thing that we have in sports at this very moment that Tevin Coleman is coming. It was so clear in week one. Tevin Coleman is coming. It's really hard to follow that up. But what I would say is I think this highlights the elusive value of the running back position in general, right? It is such an opportunity driven position. Anytime you have a running back, especially a guy who's a non I mean, obviously, Devonta Freeman was great last year, but a guy who... Let's make sure we say that. That's, that's, a, that's a very important caveat. This disclaimer always needs to be spoken before criticizing Devonta Freeman. He was very good last year. He was very good. Matt, it's been said, now we're good with the FCC. We're good. Having said that, it's this situation where anytime you have a running back who isn't in that Todd Gurley mold 
or like a David Johnson mold or Ezekiel Elliott mold. Anytime you have a guy who just randomly came from nowhere and a team didn't invest significant draft capital in him, if you have a guy like that who, like a stock, just sort of jumps up and has a sudden infusion of unexpected worth, you need to sell him immediately. And hopefully you do it for a wide receiver, you know, a, a good wide receiver who can maintain his value for a long time. Yeah, so it's just one of those situations. If you are at the point where you still have Devonta Friedman, you are you're hating yourself. And you are also probably foolishly hoping that what you saw throughout the preseason and what you saw in week one is not representative of what you will see in the future. But that is just a a fool's perspective. If you have Devonta Friedman, like you are already dead. You're already dead. So you're saying Devonta Freeman is Solar City? Yes. He is absolutely Solar City. He's just hoping that Elon Musk comes in a helicopter and picks him up before the orcs destroy him and tear his limbs off. A guy that a lot of us invested in in Dynasty, who we have big plans for, didn't come through in week one. It's Tyler Lockett. Another guy that you could acquire in Dynasty probably still can without giving up a lot, Doug Baldwin. I like owning both Doug Baldwin and Tyler Lockett in Dynasty because I like tethering my wide receivers to generational quarterbacks, and that's what I think Russell Wilson is. Doug Baldwin was a target hog again in Week 1. He went over 20 points again in Week 1. It's looking more and more and more like Doug Baldwin's 2015 second half was not a fluke. But Tyler Lockett also had seven targets. So Tyler Lockett shaping up to be one of these high volatility plays that can still help you win a GPP this year. Am I wrong? He's a guy I really like. I think you do have to pick your spots with him a little bit. But uh, again, he has that sort of hidden benefit, that peripheral benefit. And I I think victory is the type of thing that lies on, on the periphery. He has that benefit of being able to take a punt or a kick back for a touchdown. And so if you look at last year's production, he actually was more productive in the second half of the season than Amari Cooper. And if you look at them over the course of the season, they have the same number of touchdowns as rookies, as receivers. But then you have Lockett, who's able to give that extra juice because he had the two return touchdowns during the season. So I really like having guys who have multiple avenues of creating value, especially when people tend not to price that value into the worth of the player. I can't wait to stack Russell Wilson with Doug Baldwin and Tyler Lockett later in the season. I'm I'm already queued it up. It's already going to happen. I'm just waiting for the right week to do it, and I'm going to pound the shit out of that stack. I cannot wait. But we can zoom out even further on Tyler Lockett. Look at his college career. Tyler Lockett, 44.2% dominator rating. That was 87th percentile. Compare it to Amari Cooper, 47.2%, 91st percentile. Similar college resumes, similar measurables. 4440s, upper percentile agility scores. Tyler Lockett's a mini Amari Cooper, and his quarterback's better. So depending on the matchup, you could argue Tyler Lockett is going to have more upside than Amari Cooper in certain weeks this year. Now, one Seahawk that everyone believes has upside, who's never actually had any upside, even though everyone thinks he has upside, yet doesn't have any upside, never did have upside, never will have upside, even while everyone thinks he has upside, is Kristen Michael. 
How the hell did Kristen Michael fool everyone again? How did this happen, Matthew? How? Tell me. I want to know. How did it happen? Because he did it. He did it. I have him in a league. He fooled me. Yeah, Kristen Michael is like that really sexy girl that you knew in high school who would occasionally talk with you in like your lab class. And every time she talked with you, you were convinced that you had an opportunity to date her and that it's never going to happen. And the the fact is, you probably don't really even want to date her because all she is is hot, but there's nothing else there. Like, that's what he is. He seems like the type of person that you could have a lot of fun with, but ultimately he's just going to disappoint you. He's like another instance of that, like, did you bother to sell this guy when you had the chance? Ah, that's too bad. Just didn't. I really wanted to ride it out just a couple more weeks. It just felt so good. Oh, damn it. Oh, foiled again. <laughs> so, but then on the other end of the spectrum is someone like Jordan Matthews, who the fantasy community refuses to infuse any hype into, even though all he does is consistently score fantasy points. Why doesn't anyone appreciate Jordan Matthews? I contend that fantasy gamers will be doubting Jordan Matthews, trying to trade him away in Dynasty during his Hall of Fame speech. (laughs) You know what would be fantastic is if for the Hall of Fame speech, they brought up an offense and lined it up and made him stand in the slot while he's delivering his Hall of Fame speech. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. He should be flanked by two other wide receivers from Eagles history. One out wide, the X. Another one very close to him, but just off the line of scrimmage, the Z. And then you could see he would be in the Y position in front of the microphone. That would just be perfect. You people are idiots. Go get Jordan Matthews. So many people sending me offers in which they get Jordan Matthews by offering nothing. Nobody wants this guy, yet all he does is produce. So, of course, I love him. I'll be the only one that loves him. I almost met him at the Fantasy Football Trade Association conference. I was about 10 feet away from him, and I was leering at him, but I never actually found a way to meet him. I was trying to intercept him by walking near him and hoping our paths would cross, and then they never did. So it was very creepy. But I just kept looking at him and thinking, you're just a really impressive dude. And even the people in this room don't appreciate you. None of them do. They're all liars. Everyone right here that's talking to you and telling you how great they think you are, they're lying because I'm in leagues with them and they're trying to trade you away. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I, I'm sort of happy about is that early in the preseason, I tweeted out something that was comparing on a per-target basis, Jordan Matthews to Allen Robinson. And on a per-target basis, up to this point in their careers, they're actually remarkably similar if you look at at their rate statistics. Um, And of course, if you were playing in redraft leagues, you were having to pay the iron price to get Allen Robinson. And Jordan Matthews was there, you know, at least two rounds later, some cases three or four rounds later, right? And so this was like the most clear instance of an arbitrage play to me. And I got a lot of backlash on Twitter. I wasn't really, I was kind of surprised. I wasn't expecting that, you know, and people were like, well, he's not going to get the targets on a per game basis. And it's like, well, you really don't know that. Like there's the possibility that he could. (laughs) And in week one, he did. (laughs) I think, 
it was so obvious that their entire offense was going to revolve around him. He would be the focal point. He's playing the Jerry Rice role in Philadelphia's version of the West Coast offense. Everything would be geared toward getting him the football, and of course he would get huge volume in that scenario. As a rookie, as a second-year wide receiver, Jordan Matthews posted consecutive production premiums, player profilers, situation agnostic efficiency metric, above 10. So positive double-digit production premiums in year one and year two, the two years in which wide receivers are typically given to develop and grow and evolve. He didn't need those years for development. He was super productive and super efficient. And now he's in his third year, the year in which everyone thinks wide receivers are supposed to ascend. And this is the year we're not excited. Jordan Matthews is the most backward wide receiver in the NFL. He should play doing a handstand because he's just backwards. Like everyone has him backwards. Every time I have a conversation about Jordan Matthews, it feels like it's opposite world. And he just should play doing a handstand. That was awful. Yeah, it was. That might go in the outtakes. That was an awful analogy. You know, one thing actually that I think is framing all of this perspective with Jordan Matthews is that he was in that 2014 draft class. I think any other year, you would have people who would be excited about his production, right? But it's coming in the context of Odell Beckham Jr. and Mike Evans and Allen Robinson, right? Like he just he doesn't have a chance to stand on his own because he's surrounded by other guys who are just as good as him, in some cases better than him, right? But it just in a vacuum, what he has done in his first two years is very strong. It is very indicative of a guy who has a great career in front of him. Arrow pointing way, 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 way up. If he came out of college just a year later, it would have been him and Amari Cooper and a bunch of other guys. Yeah. But even though Amari Cooper was just clearly, so clearly, the number one wide receiver prospect in the 2015 class, by a wide margin, you still had wide receiver gurus in the fantasy football community ranking Doriel Green Beckham ahead of Amari Cooper in 2015. How the hell does that happen? You know, and I'm saying this as a guy who did like Doriel Green Beckham. I didn't like him more than Amari Cooper, but I did like him. Of course you didn't like him more than Amari Cooper because you're a smart person. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where people can get very caught up in the measurables. So obviously he was a huge guy. He had good straight line speed, right? He was he was a very good athlete, right? And he did have his sophomore season where he had a lot of touchdowns, right? It was a touchdown-infused campaign for him. And I think people were projecting you know, from that sophomore season to what they think he could have done as a junior if he had played, right? And so I think he was getting a lot of credit. And I would say like, this is a consequence of Josh Gordon, right? Josh Gordon, who played two years at Baylor, didn't play his junior season and ended up having two really good years to open his career. I think people were sort of extrapolating like, well, if it worked for Josh Gordon, we can assume that a guy might take this kind of step, even though he's not on the field for his junior year. You know, I I think people saw the outlier in Josh Gordon and they assumed that it was a baseline that they could extrapolate off of. That last answer is why you're on the show. Because that was an illuminating response. 
that was insightful. The Josh Gordon effect. That's what was powering the Doriel Green Beckham enthusiasm last year. <laughs> Perfectly said. I had never thought of that. And now that I'm thinking about it, I agree with it. I'll get you out of here on one last question. Who is your not dead yet player for which you're still a full-blown truther? It's embarrassing, both because it's it's wrong and because it's it's the obvious and it's Jeff Janis. Yeah! Oh, Are you pandering on Roto Underworld Radio? I mean, of course I'm pandering, but it's still my, it's still my take. No. Be happy. And this gets back to the question of like, what is the time frame that you are thinking of? And obviously, Jeff Janis was someone it's more of a dynasty long term project, even though he had outstanding production in college. The fact is he was a late round pick outstanding. He led all of Division Two in receptions and receiving yards his final season at Saginaw Valley State. Yeah. And an amazing athlete on top of that. But he was a, a seventh round pick. It is very rare for guys who enter the league as anything less than a fifth round pick to have immediate success, right? And I think there were just people who were wanting him to be great immediately. And that was unrealistic. No, that's not right. No one thought that. Davis Maddock didn't think that. I didn't think that. Even... The most enthusiastic Jeff Janis supporters didn't believe we were going to get immediate production from him. There's something else deeper going on here. There's a lot of people that actually do not like Jeff Janis, and it's visceral, and I can't explain it. Yeah, I think, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think part of it is that um, it, it's not hatred of Jeff Janis. It's hatred of the metrics people who all like in one unanimous gesture, like pointed to Jeff Janis even before he was drafted, right? Like Jeff, and the thing is like each year there are guys who aren't exactly like Jeff Janis, but who are similar to Jeff Janis, right? Who don't get a shot. And it's the fact that I think you had everyone pointing to Jeff Janis in, in that draft season and then he got drafted to like the perfect organization for him. Right. I think there was just like at that moment so much desire for him to fail because people wanted the metric side to fail. They are just soaked in bias. And you can tell because the argument is, well, he hasn't done anything yet. And my retort is always, he was a second-year player from Saginaw Valley State. Since when does anyone expect anything from that guy in his second year? But you think that I believe that he should, and therefore, because you don't like me, and we're back in high school, and you're lashing out against the smartest guy in the room, you're cheering for him to fail in the most embarrassing way possible, and then for him to boomerang it back and succeed in the most spectacular way possible in that playoff game against the Arizona Cardinals. That's why that was the greatest day in the history of my life as a sports fan. I was not only raising my hands in the air with a touchdown call, I was also giving the finger to all the people that I know hate the metrics people. That really was a great day. It's one of those situations where what you would expect from a guy who might break out in year three or year four is for him to have like this sort of miniature eruption 
at some point in year one or year two. Something that does show that he does have the potential, right? It's still it's still very raw, but that he does have the playmaking ability to be a force down the road. I think that's what we saw from Jeff Janis in the playoffs. Again, I, you know, I don't think we're going to see it this year. Like, it's still a case where it's incredibly hard to count on a seventh round pick having big NFL success. I think what is most impressive about Janis, one, is that people believed that he deserved a spot in the NFL in the first place and that he got it, and then that he's still been able to stick on the roster. Right, like that on its own means a lot. If you, if a guy who's a a late round pick can stay on the roster for a number of years, eventually he ends up getting his chance. Right, and then we get to see whether that means anything or not. He's establishing that he's a good football player because that's the other thing that haters love to say is he's not a good football player. The opposite is true. He's great in every aspect of special teams, and that's where the real football players go to work every Sunday as both a gunner and a returner. And I want to remind everyone that you not only called T.Y. Hilton a small school breakout that very few people saw coming, you then called John Brown from Pittsburgh State another virtually unknown prospect that ended up popping in the NFL. So Matthew Friedman is a Jeff Janis believer, and that goes a long way with me. Thanks, bud. We're done. That's the show. Awesome. I didn't take out any of the banter with Matthew Friedman, so we don't have any outtakes. All the outtakes were embedded in the show this week. So I want to take this opportunity to thank you, the members of the Roto Underworld audience. When the show started, a bunch of listeners that didn't understand the show rated the show one star on iTunes. That was over a year ago. And a one-star review does huge damage to your iTunes credibility. But in the last year, we've had an influx of five-star reviews. And as of a couple days ago, we've received enough five-star reviews that we are now classified as a five-star reviewed show on iTunes. We started off with the goal of doing a four-star show, but now it's official Roto Underworld Radio is a five-star show, and all the haters can suck it! What am I doing on your show?